San Diego 101. A quick heads up. This episode mentions suicide and contains graphic descriptions of killings by police officers. Tell me about your cousin, Jonathan Cornell. So I grew up with him since, you know, since I was little. We lived together as, um, as youth for a while. Then we became next door neighbors. Um, then when I went to college, we would write each other letters. And he was a very energetic, happy person. Like he had this loud laugh. He was a father. He loved his, he loved his daughter. We spent a lot of holidays together. You know, him and I were around the same age. He was, uh, he was one of my um, chambelanes for making sanguera. At that point, you know, we were young, we were teenagers, and he didn't like to dance, but he learned <laughs> because he, he had to dance for making sanguera, and so... My name is Apollo Olongo. Alfred was, he was a believer. He's a people person. He believed in good. He was welcoming and loving the people. He saw what was truly in people and what their intents were, and he... And he progressed friendships based on that. Alfred is my older brother. We're originally from actually northern Uganda. My cousin was afraid, and that's why he he ran. The witness was the one who said, um, Perdón, carnal, te tengo que entregar, which means, I'm sorry, brother. I have to tell, you know, the cops that you're here. And my cousin understood. And so then the witness instructed my cousin to remove his, to take off his shirt so that he could show the cops that he was unarmed. And then the witness told him to um, get on the floor as well so that that way, you know, the cops know that he's compliant. After my cousin did that, then um, he said, okay, I'm going to call the cops. And my cousin was okay with that. All this actually began three days prior. Um, I just touched down in uh, Riverside County and I wanted to meet up with him. I had a long trip in Uganda where I spent six months and he had just gotten back from Phoenix, Arizona, where he had been staying for about five years or so. And he was trying to integrate back into San Diego. Alfred had a friend, Barakay. Barakay was struggling with his own mental health. He had a spinal injury and was wheelchair bound. Alfred had been spending a lot of time with him. Uh, found Barricade in a situation where he was pretty down on things and spent time with him on a daily basis, basically like the eight months he was back and they'd spend every day together and pick him up, take him to the beach, things like that. Barricade um, committed suicide, shot himself. That took Alfred's mind to a different place because of all the effort that he had been putting in into basically just trying to get him over that hump, you know? I said, Alfred, how about you just come and spend some time here with me in Riverside with our mom so that we can be in a situation where is is a lot better for recovering from something like this, you know? He made his way up two days prior, but he never made it all the way. Alfred didn't go up to visit his brother. He stayed at his sister's place. That my sister became concerned. She had to go to work and she phoned for 5150. 5150 is a California law code. If you call a 5150, you're saying there's someone who needs help. They're mentally unstable and they may be a danger to themselves or to others because of mental distress. Saying, you know, my 
brother seems to be in distress, dealing with some psychological issues, and he's not a danger to anybody. He's not armed, but um, I'm concerned and I don't want to go to work and leave him under these conditions. Christopher Villanueva, who was a San Diego sheriff, he just went up to him, shot him. Even though my cousin was on the ground shirtless to demonstrate that he was unarmed and compliant, um, after he shot him, he still reloaded his gun and he pointed it to my cousin's head and he instructed him not to move, right? As if any human being could move after being riddled with 16 plus gunshots. And he left them there for hours to die slowly. Made another phone call saying, I called 5150. My brother's out here under the same conditions. He's not armed, but I'm concerned. I have to go to work. One officer came on the scene. From what was reported, he pulled out a taser. Then another. Introduced the gun to the situation. The worst thing you can do in a circumstance like that, I don't know what kind of training says that when you're dealing with mentally ill people, that call for 5150 who are unarmed, you should introduce uh, a deadly firearm. That second officer shot Alfred. I thought he could have survived it just because I know him. And after I found out the kind of shooting, then I realized like he really did fight. But you're, it's really hard to survive four bullets to the sternum at that range. He meant to do what he did. Alfred died at the hospital. That was a really traumatizing day for all of us. That was a terrible day. I'm Maya Shri Krishnan. And I'm Adriana Heldes. From Voice of San Diego, this is San Diego 101. Who polices the police? Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. So I think it's important to understand a couple of things. One, law enforcement agencies are public servants. And in a democracy where people are supposed to be treated equitably, at least in theory, uh, police officers are the ones who are tasked with upholding the laws of cities, counties, state, federal government. They're supposed to keep the peace. They respond to emergencies. They're supposed to investigate wrongdoing. Um, But at their core, they're also agents of the state, and they're typically armed and they have the ability to take life. Jesse Marks is a reporter at Voice of San Diego. He covers a lot of stuff related to law enforcement. I've also covered quite a few cases involving use of force and fatal shootings as well. He's going to help us understand local law enforcement. We hold police officers to a really high standard because we give them an enormous amount of responsibility. The first thing we need to get to is who is law enforcement? Who are these people carrying guns around in San Diego, enforcing laws, with this enormous amount of responsibility? Let's start with the police department. 
Who leads the police departments? Police departments are typically led by a chief if a city has its own department. Um, and that person is typically uh, appointed by an elected body or a mayor. And so technically... In the city technically, the there's this order. The big boss is the mayor or the city council of a city, and they choose a chief of police. The chief keeps the department running. These elected officials are supposed to make sure they're doing the best job possible to serve the people. And I think that's actually been one of the fundamental sources of contention over the years is, is the proper role of elected officials to oversee police departments. But in reality, it's more common that elected officials defer to the police chief. So the police are pretty much managing themselves. But that's just for cities that have police departments, right, Adriana? Right. Not every place in San Diego has its own police department. Yeah, and the next level of law enforcement that serves the whole county is the sheriff's department and the sheriff. And for the sheriff's departments, you mentioned that they're, the sheriff is an elected uh, figure, but who's in charge of the sheriff? Like right now we have Bill Gore, who's the sheriff of the San Diego Sheriff's mm -hmm. Department. Who's in charge of Bill Gore? That's a great question, actually, because he is an elected official, so it creates a certain tension. He he theoretically represents the people of San Diego because he's elected by them. But at the same time, you have a county board of supervisors who are also elected by the people. And so those lines aren't always clear between who is overseeing who. That's something I think a lot of people may not know. One of the top law enforcers in San Diego is the sheriff. And every four years, they have to run for office. And we vote on who gets to be sheriff. Yeah, and similar to law enforcement down at the city level, Jesse says there's this tension between law enforcement and other elected leaders about who is in charge of what. The sheriff has a lot of authority to actually handle the day-to-day -day operations and contracts and things like that on himself. So he will report to the county board of supervisors. The county board of supervisors. They're in charge of keeping the government running for the whole county of San Diego, and there are five of them to represent five different sections of the county. For, say, uh, discussions about the budget, which the county needs to approve. But other things he handles on his own, and he has more leeway over it. But there's a natural and inherent tension there. And I don't know how that ever will get resolved. So just a quick recap, there are several police departments across the San Diego region. Some of them are um, led by cities. So there's the Chula Vista Police Department, the San Diego Police Department, um, and others. But there's also the Sheriff's Department, which oversees um, certain parts of the county that don't have their own police departments. These are usually unincorporated areas like Ramona or Spring Valley. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And they'll also contract, the Sheriff's Department will also contract with um, cities that don't have their own agencies that they haven't built from, from scratch. So like Imperial Beach and Sanitas. And they oversee the jails too. Yeah, right? exactly. Yep. So we've got police and police chief. And sheriff's deputies and the sheriff. But there's another really big law enforcement job that's key to this whole system in San Diego. The district attorney or the DA. The, the easiest way to think about it is that the district attorney is the chief prosecutor in the county, um, but is primarily focused on uh, crimes of a more serious 
matter. The DA is tasked with reviewing evidence that's gathered up by a police department to determine whether charges are warranted. The DA will also review potential misconduct cases um, against police officers. Um, One of the most important things that the district attorney does is actually review um, reports related to fatal shootings to decide if there's any criminal liability there. So that's a big job. Highest level prosecutor for the whole county, a region of over 3 million people. This job is also elected, like the sheriff. The DA essentially goes after people in court who've been accused of crimes. That's who is who. Some of the biggest, most important law enforcement people in San Diego. Now let's jump into one of the biggest discussions around law enforcement right now in San Diego, California, and lots of other places in the U.S. Police oversight. That's who's keeping tabs on police and sheriff's departments. Who is policing the police? You may have heard about police reform a lot recently, too. That factors into this. Police reform is about how people want to change the way police do their job and how they interact with society. So who polices the police? I think the short answer is that cops typically are expected to police themselves. But a lot of the attention over the last couple of years has been paid to improving those mechanisms for oversight. So even though theoretically you have a system in place of review, like we talked about before, where prosecutors are above cops, um, frankly, it, it hasn't it hasn't been good enough. And that's what the- Jesse says there are a couple of layers of oversight to keep tabs on them like the Professional Standards Unit. It's an anti-corruption team, basically. And that's still within the police department itself, right? Right, for the police department. And in this case, just for the city of San Diego. And what about outside of the police? Well, there's this other group for the city of San Diego, and it's not uncommon for this type of thing to exist in other places, too. There are community review boards. The the board itself is is usually made up of of a combination of people, but they tend to be uh, already friendly to police departments or to political leaders in town. And I think up until recently, this group reviewed investigations that had already been done by the police, just to be another step in the process that kind of looks like oversight. But he says oversight isn't really what's happening here. And their complaint had been that the city's community review board on police practices um, was was a toothless one because it was just coming in and it was just reviewing reports given to it by the internal affairs unit. The reason why any of this matters for police to have these processes and why people care about things like review boards and who are the top cops in San Diego is because in the most extreme circumstances, they have the authority and the ability to take life. Like in the case of Earl McNeil. What happened to Earl McNeil? He was a 40-year-old black man who showed up at the National City showed Police up at the National City Police Department and uh, he picked up the telephone outside the building um, According to investigators, he he was offering to turn himself in on a warrant and um, appeared to be agitated, appeared to be rambling. He had Um, methamphetamine in the system at that time. Court records have also suggested that he was uh, schizophrenic. And so he had all these different elements coming together. Earl shows up at the 
Police Department in National City in May 2018, and clearly in a in a kind of crisis or in a, in a in a state in need of some sort of help. But police officers approached him and tried to put him in handcuffs. Uh, he struggled. Struggled, and they wound up wrestling to the ground, and the police officers eventually put him into a restraining device. Uh, which wraps the legs up in a kind of blanket, and then... And the top half of the body is sort of strapped in, so you can't move. I mean, even if you're not in the midst of a behavioral health crisis, a mental health crisis, something like that can be quite scary. And so what happened in Earl McNeil's case is that this device that was supposed to theoretically calm him down didn't. and clearly became more more panicky and uh, was resisting more and more. And we now know that he was left in the device for several hours. And during the process, the police put a spit sock over his mouth. Uh, at one point, they pulled his shirt up over his face. They took him to the county jail, but uh, a nurse there decided that he was too agitated to be booked. So the officers called an ambulance instead, and it was at that point, about several hours after the initial interaction had taken place, that he stopped breathing. City Police Custody says a Citizens Review Board report backs up their claim that their loved one died from excessive force. Earl McNeil went to the department looking for help back in May of last year, but he ended up in a coma before dying. The family believes that this supports their argument that law enforcement played a role in the death of Earl McNeil. It wasn't just, as people were saying, it wasn't a drug overdose. It was a a multitude of things that happened. Um, to cause him to, to lose oxygen to the for the death of Earl McNeil. The 40-year-old man died while in police custody. Now, a warning, some of the video in this story is not suitable for all viewers. Earl McNeil is a, I think, a... Uh, an example of just the severe shortcomings of our system, especially dealing with people who are in the midst of a, a mental health crisis. Two weeks after he voluntarily turned himself into the police, he died on June 11th, 2018. What happened to those cops, the ones who were responsible for dealing with Earl McNeil when he was trying to turn himself in? So like Jesse said before, the district attorney is the one who's ultimately responsible for looking into big cases like this one, when there's major officer misconduct or when officers have killed someone. But the district attorney declined to file any charges. So at the end of the Earl McNeil case, um, the district attorney declined to file any charges and not just against the national city officers who were involved in it, but also against the sheriff's deputies who were present at the, the jail when McNeil came in. Uh, Summer Stephan, the district attorney, concluded that the officers weren't directly responsible for McNeil's death, even though the medical examiner's office had determined that he died due to uh, brain damage as a result of respiratory arrest. Respiratory arrest. So he couldn't breathe? Yeah. The county citizens law enforcement review board looked into it and concluded that the, that one of the deputies involved had violated a use of force policy for like literally pulling up McNeil's t-shirt over his face while he was in jail. But the thing to note is that 
one, we don't know who that officer is, but two, we do know that even though he violated that policy, by the time that decision came down, he was no longer working for the department. So theoretically, the only person involved who could have faced discipline was literally not even there, and I don't know what happened to him. None of the cops who were responsible for what happened to Earl McNeil were punished, like what happened in the cases of Jonathan Cornell and Alfred Alongo that you heard earlier. And actually, the sheriff's deputy who killed Jonathan Cornell had killed another man, Sergio Wick, just months before, in the same fashion. But he kept his job. And then he killed Jonathan. As even Police Chief David Nislaid has said, I've heard him say this at press conferences before, like police officers should be held to a higher standard. And they should because they have the authority to take life and they're supposed to keep the peace and conduct themselves in an honest and equitable way. And so they're not above the law. And in a democratic society, they have to be responsive to the people and not the other way around. There's no perfect police violence victim and there shouldn't be any police violence victims and I want people to know that you know Jonathan was a loving human being Jonathan was a father Jonathan did not deserve that murder and if people are quick to try to find a justification for his murder then they're really sustaining a culture that says it's okay to not have due process. It's okay to give this police entity absolute power to choose who, to, who is worthy of life and death. And that's not a reality that any of us should be living in. Now Rocio is an advocate and an activist. She says it happened out of necessity after what happened to her cousin, Jonathan. She's a member of the California Stop Coalition, which is a statewide coalition of family members whose loved ones have been killed by police. And Apollo and his family started a foundation in his brother's name, the Alfred Alongo Foundation. He's an advocate now, too. Works with lawmakers to push for police reform. After the break, what you need to know about police oversight now. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. After a police officer murdered George Floyd in 2020, there's been renewed attention on police accountability, and it's led to a lot of discussions about police reform. Here are three things that we want you to know are going on right now. First is about mental health. Like with Alfred Alongo and Earl McNeil cases, and a lot of other people in San Diego. Police are very often the ones who show up when someone's having a mental health crisis, when they need help. And there's been a lot of questions on whether they should be the ones to do that. And one change that could happen soon in San Diego is dedicated to that. 
the County Board of Supervisors have talked about beefing up a local team of psychiatric emergency responders. They, instead of cops, could show up to help someone who's struggling with their mental health. Second is the Commission on Police Practices. In the 2020 election, people in the city of San Diego voted on a measure to say yes, they wanted a new group dedicated to police oversight. So now, a really important thing to pay attention to is how this group is formed. It was written to be a lot more effective and have a lot more power than the previous oversight group, but it hasn't been finalized yet, so watch out for it. Third, there have been some changes at the state level, like Senate Bill 2, or SB 2, which is a really big deal. This is a law just for the state of California. It makes it easier for police to lose their jobs if they violate the people's trust. Right now, it's really hard to decertify a cop, you know, like when a doctor gets their license revoked. It's hard to decertify a cop, even if they've done something against the law. This bill, SB 2, is a way to keep them more accountable. A tool to police the police. The murder of George Floyd made a big impact and forced a lot of momentum for change. And that change is something we have to keep up with to make sure there's justice and accountability. Because there's a lot more work to do. A special thank you to Rocio Zamora, who shared her story about her cousin, Jonathan Cornell. And Apollo Alongo, who shared his story about his brother, Alfred Alongo. Thank you both. San Diego 101 credits. San Diego 101 is a product of Voice of San Diego. Hosted and produced by Maya Shikrishnan and Adriana Heldes. Produced, edited, and mixed by me, Nate John. Additional support from Megan Wood. Learn more about San Diego and how it works at sd101.org. That's sd101.org. San Diego 101 is made possible with support from the Langler Benbow Foundation, the Parker Foundation, and the Seuss Foundation. Additional support from Gulper, Sullivan, Rivera, and Osuna, and Bloodhurst and O'Reardon, LLC, and the members of Voice of San Diego. Support SD101 and become a member now at vosd.org slash member. San Diego 101 and transmission. Goodbye.